there at Blockchain Live in Kensington, Olympia in London. And hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider episode 66. I'm, of course, Simon Taylor. This week, well, we're bringing you a very special show, jam-packed with all the interviews Colin and I did at Blockchain Live in London last Wednesday. You're going to hear from some amazing guests, including Zen Burnham Heard and Garrick Holman from Blockchain.com, Jojo Hubbard from Electron, Rianne Lewis, founder of London Women in Bitcoin, and Richard Crook, who was from RBS, Ben Wyeth of NatWest, and David Williams from Chorum, talking about their new alliance that we touched on briefly in last week's show. And last but not least, uh, Lydia Torn from uh, Simmons & Simmons, a law firm advising on blockchain and healthcare, which was a very interesting chat. So uh, let's hear from them all now, kicking off with the team at Blockchain. All right, so we are here uh, back in Blockchain Live 2018 and in the UK, coming live to you from London. And uh, we are uh, talking to two exceptional individuals, uh, to uh, Zen Bainham-Hurd and Garrick Hillman from Blockchain. How are you, gentlemen? Really well, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being on our Humble Humble podcast. Um, gentlemen, uh, Garrick, you're chairing the main stage today. Um, you're probably seeing, uh, getting a good uh, check on the pulse of where the industry's at. You know, where, where are we in 2018? In the middle of a bear market for crypto with regulators coming out and saying things. Is, is blockchain over? Is it dead? <laughs> It, it, no, it's certainly not. And, and I found your, uh, your your discussion with Blythe, I think, really uh, you know useful in, on this question, especially the comment you know about oh we're in the trough of disillusionment. Um, you know, certainly I haven't seen any disillusionment on the stage and amongst kind of the key people who are really building. Um, I think Blythe said it said it really well that look, this stuff uh, is is hard work. Uh, it takes a lot of dedication over a long period of time to figure out how to solve problems. It's not all going to happen right away. Oliver Boosman, as I mentioned. A couple of years ago, really, I think, correctly pushed back on, uh, you know, some of the hype around how quickly this could all happen. I think he's been right in that regard, and it was great to hear uh, from him today and how he still is, uh, if anything, even more, I think, optimistic about the long-term impact this technology is going to have. But it is going to take time. The classic is people tend to overstate the pace of change and understate the impact. Um, Zen, talk to me a little bit about what you do uh, for blockchain and, and what is blockchain to the uninitiated? Sure. So uh, Blockchain is the company uh, where both uh, Garrick and I work. Uh, my role is head of strategy and head of market. Um, and that means uh, helping the company launch both our institutional platform, which is called Blockchain Principal Strategies, um, and also helping guide the process of new products, uh, particularly on the financial market side. Interesting, because uh, you have a very institutional background in, in financial markets. Uh, Garrick, you come from uh, Cambridge and academia, but also have an incredible track record understanding the space and being the explainer of it. We talk about uh, institutions and we throw this word around. What does it actually mean when we talk about institutions and blockchain and crypto? Uh, who are we talking about specifically and what do they want from this crypto stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it can mean many things. Um, typically, people see it to mean normally hedge funds or asset managers or banks uh, coming into crypto. In reality, it's often, well, currently what we're seeing is a lot of what we think is institutional take-up is, in fact, individuals who are at these companies, maybe the owner of a hedge fund or a family office acting on their own behalf. We haven't seen a huge amount of real hedge funds or asset managers doing investment, uh, investing or trading as part of their overall mandate. I think we do see this, uh, but there are some hurdles for adoption still to come. Well, mandates are hard to change and they're usually set on over long cycles and, and so on. But uh, there's some dedicated crypto funds and then fund of funds starting to emerge. What do you think the next sort of two to three years for institutions and crypto looks like? Are they looking to adopt crypto as it exists today? Uh, are they looking to get into Bitcoin, for instance? Or are they looking for securities tokens and something else? What, what's your view on that? I think it depends, again, on the institution. I think right now the, the immediate interest is in trading and investing in cryptocurrencies. And for that to happen, you need probably a fair amount more uh, regulatory clarity for a lot of these institutions to, to get into the market. But also improvements in custody, i.e. the infrastructure needed to actually hold and manage cryptocurrencies. So I think in that regard, the the way forward might look quite boring for a while. A fair amount of building, a fair amount of process, operational stuff to enable these uh, institutions to invest and, and trade. 
can I ask specifically on the, the regulatory clarity? What exactly do you mean? I mean, we're in the UK, Bitcoin's legal. What do you mean by regulatory clarity from an institutional point of view? Well, for example, the, the UK put together a, uh, a cryptocurrency uh, task force and the Treasury came out with a uh, select committee report because it isn't that clear, in fact, because cryptocurrency can be uh, seen as a crypto asset. It can be seen as a form of money. It can be seen as a representation of an existing asset, like uh, taking gold and creating a token backed by that gold. It might be a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which is has different uh, legal uh, legal views in different jurisdictions. Uh, or it might be, like you say, a security token or some sort of security that has taken the form of a digital asset. And so within the, the what we call crypto or blockchain, there's such a wide spectrum uh, that certain parts fall under different regulatory frameworks. So talk to me, uh, you mentioned the word custody. First and foremost, what is custody and why do institutions want it? And second of all, what's missing from the custody services that are available today that a big institution might, might want? Sure. So custody really means looking after your private keys. And private keys are really the things which enable crypto assets to move around on the network. So I imagine the crypto assets being as being things which live on blockchains. And in order to move them from one place to another, you have to use a private key. So the real thing is about how do you store my private keys? Um, there are different solutions out there. Uh, our company offers a non-custodial wallet. That means you download some software which enables you to encrypt locally the private keys and essentially be your own bank. That is our motto. Uh, the users have control over their private keys. It's non-custodial. If a company like ours or a bank or another company has control over those private keys, that company has custody over the private keys and by definition the assets themselves and, and so this is um the kind of the clean title piece right so who is the who has the title to that asset becomes really really important from a legal standpoint because if i'm going to if the crime has been committed or uh, if somebody if there's a dispute who the owner is having somebody that can clearly define that is really easily uh, is is much easier if it's obvious where it's custodied um but it's harder if somebody's being their own bank uh in the existing model but do you think institutions will grasp this and, and uh, start to look for institutional custody solutions because uh, certainly what I've seen is a lot of funds are quite happily building their own funds administration if they're dedicated crypto funds they tend to understand the technology quite a bit are we going to see um, institutions looking for that or do you think they will move more in that direction and, and look to custody their own assets I think we'll see institutions looking for solutions provided to them um, mm -hmm. And I think we'll see the emergence of quite a few options. Um, I don't think it's a winner-takes-all market. I think we'll see uh, in different jurisdictions uh, a number of custodians emerge which fulfill that exact need. Interesting. Yeah. One thing i just add to that is I think custody is, is absolutely one of the key kind of uh, roadblocks to further institutional adoption. Um, you know, funds, institutions... Uh, haven't really managed bearer assets uh, in recent times. There used to be bearer bonds and these things, but uh, it's a new challenge, new, new thing that institutions are grappling with and getting comfortable with. And I agree with Zen that you know different institutions are going to require different solutions, so having a range of options is going to be important. But I would also say that custody isn't shouldn't be seen as some kind of oh, once we solve custody, institutions are just going to come you know stomping into the space. There's a whole range of things. Uh, that also need to be addressed, things that, uh, that I'm working on, lots of other people in universities, other research firms around quality of data, uh, providing more reliable information, even simple uh, data points like what is the, uh, the current circulating supply for a token uh, is oftentimes really actually really hard to figure out. Um, and it's a really basic thing that an institution will look at and say, if I don't even know what the circulating supply is for, say, XRP, uh, I don't know what rules are around, not to pick on Ripple, love Ripple, but... Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know what rules are governing, you know, how, you know, what Jeb McCaleb can sell or can't sell. This was in the news this week. You know, that's that's going to be a barrier for a lot of institutions before they get comfortable coming in and trading uh, different digital assets. I, I can completely see that. Colin? And, and the question I want to ask around that, I mean, just the basic idea of how much is a Bitcoin fundamentally worth? Being the most widely traded one, same thing for XRP, Ether, whatever it is. Uh, is that something that people are asking now? Because, I mean, I, I know what the price is on an exchange, but what's it really worth? It's a great question. I, I don't think that uh, we have a reliable, kind of robust answer to that question yet. I think we have a lot of innovative thinking uh, and work being done on how to value crypto assets, looking at things like, well, what, what is it, first of all, if we want to look at it from a currency perspective, you know, and, and look at things like velocity and some of these traditional uh, models for, for measuring value, calculating value for currencies, if we look at it from a 
kind of a commodity perspective and think about its use as a store of value, we start to think about, okay, well, maybe it could take this kind of market share for, say, other stores of value like digital pool. But it's, it's still early days in developing uh, valuation techniques. I think um, it was Chris Berniski or someone who said, you know, the... Um, you know, the, uh, the, the joint stock company was invented several hundred years before we developed techniques like discounted cash flows to actually uh, properly value companies. It could be hopefully uh, not that long, but hopefully a little while uh, longer before we have really reliable means to value crypto assets. Hmm, interesting. Um, Gary, you've been doing a, a lot of talking lately about um, the subject of stable coins. Uh, what's a stable coin? Why is it interesting? Who's going to want them? And are they all just BS? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so stable coins aren't new. Uh, you know, I think Tether was created uh, all the way back in 2014. Um, you know, some of the uh, early thinking around some of these more algorithmic stable coins uh, was done by uh, Robert Sams back in 2014 in a, in a now um, widely read paper on seniority shares. Uh, so it's not a new concept, but I think, you know, year after year, we've just, it's just been reinforced how volatile digital assets are, at least for now. Maybe over time, something like Bitcoin becomes less volatile. But in the meantime, that volatility is really holding back, we think, millions of individuals, many institutions from getting involved with cryptocurrencies. And so stablecoins are an attempt to address that by creating a uh, cryptocurrency that is programmable like Bitcoin, but has something built into its design, some mechanism to stabilize the price, typically against the U.S. dollar. Uh, we released a major research report today um, uh, looking at 57 stablecoins that we identified. About two-thirds of them are actually pegged to the U.S. dollar, but they're also pegged to things like the euro, uh, the yen, uh, gold even, or even uh, uh, economic measures like inflation. And so the aim here is really to have some of the benefits of Bitcoin is programmability and Ether's you know, integration with smart contracts, but also to have a little more, um, a little less volatility so that you could use it for use cases like, say, insurance. Typically, people, when they take out an insurance contract, they want to know that you know, what they're going to get back. And if the price of something like Bitcoin dropped 50%, that's going to impact their insurance claim significantly. Interesting times. Um, gentlemen, um, we're going to end this here. So... Um, do you want to remind uh, the uh, listeners and the people in the audience here today where they can find out more about blockchain.com? Sure. Um, I would say blockchain.com is a good place to start. <laughs> How about that? How do you, if, how do you spell that? Yeah. <laughs> how do you spell that again? All, all one word, blockchain. Uh, B-L-O-C-K-C-H-A-I-N.com. Uh, formerly blockchain.info. You may know us from uh, our data, our explorer, and our charts from blockchain.info. We migrated over to blockchain.com. And uh, the Stablecoins report is available on the research tab, which you can find at the bottom of the page if you want to download that for free uh, today. And right. you guys have a wallet as well. And the wallet. 20, 20, 28 million wallets created and counting. Exciting times. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'm here at Blockchain Live with Jojo Hubbard of Electron. <laughs> so we've now we've decided right leading up to the show that you're going to renationalize everything on Electron. Before we get into that, can you tell us who you are, who Electron is? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, I'm Jojo Hubbard, and I am the co-founder and COO of Electron. And Electron is an enterprise uh, software company in the energy space. And we are currently working on building with partners in the energy space, like essentially the most advanced transmission and distribution kind of integrated trading platform in the world integrated trading platform so yeah. <laughs> electricity trading specifically well so this is what's really what key. am i trading yeah okay <laughs> so you're trading electricity and grid services okay. and attributes so if you think of all of the current electricity trading platforms you know let's say apx or apex spot uh you can trade power in big forward chunks mm. but like Power is is that like treated like this fungible commodity? Like all power is the same value. Is it? Whereas, well, so so, so, so in, in actual like in real life, it's not, and increasingly it's increasingly not because of renewables. So because you've got all this localized, uh, essentially almost zero marginal cost generation, power in itself is no longer valuable. I mean, sometimes we've actually got excess capacity, and we're paying people to use power. What's valuable is where you produce power, when you produce power, and what attributes that power has. So, for example. Power with a faster response profile is worth more than uh, like power that responds slowly. So you'll pay a battery more to respond to a price signal than you will a big coal plant. So that's an interesting idea. So like if we brought it into transportation, um, yeah. like 
you wouldn't pay the same price for like uh, a private taxi to take you from point A to point B that will do it at any point as you would uh, a bus or a train that will take you on a fixed schedule. Yeah, is, is it similar? That's well, that's that's a nice analogy. Let's let's try that as an analogy. For example, you wouldn't expect a taxi taking you from London to Wales to cost the same amount as a taxi taking you from Wales to somewhere further north, even if it was the same. Distance, okay. because you know, I, I, I guess you've got all sorts of other attributes around the London taxi. Okay, so there's more supply of taxis in London, maybe, but they can also be paid more to do yeah. other things. So, like, like, like the, the, the price point's higher, and there's all these other factors right. affecting something that, that that might seem fungible because, like, you know, they were paying the same. But costs. at the end, end of the day, so I, I'm guessing, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. you're not you're not building a platform that goes directly to a consumer like me who just wants to turn on the light. Absolutely. We are B2B. Uh, we're building a platform for uh, the national system operator, for the local network operators, so the kind of transmission and distribution, and for kind of big suppliers. So essentially it's B2B. So if I understand the whole system and how it works today, um, there's a, let's say it's a nuclear power plant on the south coast of the UK. Yeah. Um, I want to turn on my light switch 500 kilometers away. What happens like between nuclear power fission happening and me turning on my light and where do you fit it right okay so um let's look at how it gets physically delivered to you first right so you've got a system operator who runs the national transmission wire so essentially the high voltage lines that you see held up by these big metal pylons mm -hmm. uh that takes you down to the small wooden pylons that essentially you know, step step down in voltage and, and, and take it to your house. So that's the transmission system and the distribution system. You then, um, uh, and, 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 and that physically delivers the power to you, and you pay your supplier, who you've pre-agreed to pay either a fixed price for power or a price, you know, a kind of time of use tariff. We're beginning to get but a couple more flavors, but there's very, very few flavors. Yeah. Uh, you pay them for the energy you use, and they have pre-purchased that power from the power plant to cover all the energy they predict that you're going to use and that their generation is going to produce. Now, that was kind of easy in a world of coal and nuclear because it's all quite predictable. In a world of renewables, uh, it gets harder and harder for the whole system to balance at the transmission level to manage flows of power through the local network, because all of these uh, products are connected to the local network, and for the just supplier to have their trading position in balance, because you've got this weather-dependent generation. So that's what caused this idea, of something we call attribute power, okay. where it's not just the power that's valuable, it's what and where and when and how you produced. And so our platform basically links the asset's identity to the actual trade or the traded products itself. Um, so that's already a very new concept in energy. It's not being done anywhere. Uh, the second concept on, on top of that is, let's say, uh, uh, it, it allows multilateral tradings. So the system operators basically going to pay you to balance the whole system. Yeah. So if there's too much power, they'll pay you to use it. If there's too little, they'll sort of pay you not to, right? Just really basically. The local transmission operator will pay you not to use power in an area with a constraint or to soak up kind of power. Let's say there's so many solar panels here, they'll pay a battery just to absorb that power to prolong the life of their transforming asset, which otherwise gets very hot and kind of burns out quickly. Uh, and, and then the energy trader themselves will actually like, pay you to kind of keep the thing in balance. All of those are non-rival goods. And no trading platform today lets you match these kind of goods on a multilateral basis. So could you do this without a blockchain? So you absolutely could do this without a blockchain, but it would absolutely require everyone to be trading on exactly the same platform. So in an ideal world, if you're developing your country from scratch, probably this would be like a nationalized system architecture. Um, but given that you've got all these different orthogonal value vectors and ev uh, everyone gets the most value from the system when they share the value of the actions. And so let's say national grids are going to pay you anyway to turn down power. Yeah. If someone can kind of come in, like a local network operator, and say, I want you to turn it down here and I'll subsidize that, or I don't want you to turn it down here and I'll pay you not to take that action here. That's how you get the system efficiency. So a multilateral trade needs everyone to be on the same platform. And blockchain's a way of doing that without renationalizing our energy system. So, okay, when you say blockchain, what do you mean specifically? Yeah, good question. Uh, so, it, it's, it's essentially a shared data infrastructure. Okay. Um, our, our platform is a kind of permission platform. We've basically recreated current regulation. It's yeah. kind of called governance in the blockchain world, but it is just regulation, really. It's like, who's allowed to do what? 
Um, and and um, there's two kind of core modules. One is an identity module, which just literally just makes sure everyone's referring to the same asset in the same way and allows people to associate tradable attributes to that asset. So I've got a battery. I can associate the fact that it's in this location. So then when I go and hit the... Uh, the locational product defined by the next grid operator, I can essentially prove that that battery that I'm using to bid into that uh, market is in the location I say it's in. And I can also go and hit the energy price from someone else at the same time because the grid, the, the local distribution operator, he only wanted my location. Okay. So when you say that it, it's built across, I, I'm sending this information about who I am, where I am, what I'm sending, where the power is coming from. Mm probably a lot more information than that. When you say it's going into blockchain, are you dumping all of that in? No. Like you're, you're pumping this through Ethereum? Where is it? Where does it live? So very little of that data actually has to sit on the blockchain. On the, on the identity side, the only piece that has to sit on the blockchain is the, um, the unique identifying number. We call it an MPAN in energy, like down to like the meter level. Okay. Uh, you can associate state or kind of additional attributes on the blockchain, but then everyone can see it. So you might not want to. Uh, you definitely need to be able to grant and rescind uh, data permission access, access okay. on the same blockchain so people can go and look at the off-blockchain stores and check like the technical specs of that asset. So that's on the kind of identity module side. Uh, and the only thing that actually needs to sit on this kind of shared data infrastructure on the trading module side is the specification of the product. So by, by product, I mean a, a local network operator saying, I want you to uh, not use power at this location during this time period. I want you to be available at my option to do X. Um, the umpire contract, this is how things are matched. And then at your option, maybe, the actual uh, the match trading sets, if you want to publish that to the network, but you don't even want to like you know put trade by trade on it because then everyone else can see how everyone else is bidding. You just commit hashes so it's auditable. You can check that someone has basically contracted to provide a service at, at, at this time, and you can go back and kind of unroll that with a regulator. And we've talked a lot about this kind of in in the region of the UK. Is this yeah. the the idea is it should be global or is it regional? So the the natural boundaries are where you are uh, sort of balancing the system level. So, for example, in, in, in the U.S., some of the biggest markets would be like uh, CalISO in California, NISO in New York, and ERCOT in Texas. Um, and and like all of them would probably want their own platform. If you want to go and trade between areas, I mean, I think that's probably done on another platform. because Possibly. Yeah. So, can I use this platform? Theoretically, it's set up in the U.K. I can isolate the places where I get paid to use electricity. Can I just use that to go mine Bitcoin for free or get paid to mine Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. It's really funny, yeah. Um, yes, in theory, you can okay, get how do I paid do that? to use energy. Um, well, so that, that's sort of step two. Step one is actually kind of boring. What we're doing is basically evolution, not revolution. It's like, let's just coordinate because everyone gets more value from coordination. Step two is you've got all of this data instead of price signals and requirements from everyone mm. in one platform, and people can start building apps on top of it. So maybe one app is like Uber Search for like power prices or low power prices yeah. and someone with a very fast Tesla can drive around and, uh, and, be hilarious. and mine free electricity <laughs> maybe right maybe but, uh, and, but, I mean that is actually I mean the, the whole mining Bitcoin for free like you're just dumping energy like in theory if we have a more efficient energy system we won't need to dump energy that way we're sort well, of then how do I mine my Bitcoin <laughs> I mean however you like Okay. But I don't think that's a, a, a kind of key tool in balancing the energy system. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's blockchain live. Yeah. We need to talk about mining. I, I have to get it in. I didn't get to talk about it today. So. You didn't. So I'm very sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's really cool. So I, what is the next step? Where Where are you today? When's the ICO? All these important questions. <laughs> so I don't think we're ever going to do an ICO. Good choice. <laughs> um, I, I mean, our, our platforms have utility to the utilities, and yep. they don't want currency risk. But essentially, I mean, it's, 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 it's very useful to be able to settle directly for products or services on the platform, but you can just represent a native unit of account. So, guys, that's a pound. <laughs> you settle in pounds, you know? That's quite cool. Yeah. And I, I like the idea of pounds. how it's working. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people do. Makes um, sense. So, uh, we are going to be raising equity, I think, okay. in the old school standard way. I mean, I really like the idea of tokenizing equity. I'm just not sure the world's quite ready for it yet. Securities tokens. Yeah. Uh, people are talking what about it. What do you it. think? I, I, I am skeptical about a lot of it. I think maybe that's a series B for us. The, yeah. yeah, there's probably a longer discussion <laughs> of like why, why that is, but... 
a lot of people are interested. We'll put it there. Yeah. You know, the the virus is spreading and all that yeah. great stuff. So. It's something we explored in, in great detail. I mean, you have to believe in the liquidity in order to tokenize. And I think unless you have a big enough round or kind of big enough going concern, people don't necessarily believe in the liquidity. But I, I still fundamentally come back to the idea of why just inserting a token into the equation gives you more liquidity or whether that's necessarily a desirable thing. Yeah. Um, I, I used to work in capital markets and I, I think our friend Elon Musk can give you a lot of reasons why having more liquidity is a bad thing and having people that price your, your company on a near real-time basis may or may not be a good thing. But, but and I, I don't think, know if an early stage company needs that. But I also think in the same vein, Elon Musk uh, leveraged his kind of network of believers and stakeholders through equity, you know, the first and the best, you know, like, I, he's still one of the kings of essentially that model. He is, and and he's being explored by the SEC for exactly that yeah. reason, and that may not turn out well for him. I think before we go there, it would be really interesting to see politicians on the blockchain and have their own token so that we can like buy it up and down. Yeah, like a fantasy league for politicians. I'm not sure who I'd be buying right now. I don't think right anybody now. would like that idea, <laughs> but I, yeah, I would be selling them all right now. But. Yeah. Thank you very I much. Where can people find out more about you and about Electron? So at our website, uh, everything's on www.electron.org.uk. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm here live at Blockchain Live with Rianne Lewis. Hey, nice to be here. So you're the co-developer, is that the right term, for Count My Crypto, uh, an awesome site that I've used personally myself uh, for a little while now, and you've been in the space longer than most people I know. Um, so it's great to finally catch up with you again. Uh, I know we were on a panel. We were, you know, co-attacking co a couple of different cryptocurrencies out there for uh, yeah. <laughs> IG. So definitely go back and look at that. That was, what, about six, six, nine months ago? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. But today we, we want to talk about a few different things. But before we do that, can you tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so um, I got into this whole crazy crypto and blockchain space back in 2013 when I started trading. Um, and it was kind of the the, uh, the rise of hundreds and hundreds of now forgotten altcoins, which uh, I was just wildly trading without much idea of what I was doing, wrote a script to track um, my alts, which became a web application Count My Crypto. Through that, I just became obsessed with the space. Uh, I founded London Women in Bitcoin back in 2014. Um, also, now these days, I do some strategy work, I do some education work, I teach the Ethereum QA engineer course for B9 Lab, among other things, and all the time struggling away trying to keep life going in some semblance of normality as a contracting developer. So you do your own development for projects for clients, for yourself. You do a lot of, you brought up London Women Blockchain, uh, you brought up B9 Labs, a lot of kind of, if I could broadly speak and call it advocacy and education. Um, is that is that fair? I think that's fair. Um, it's I actually prefer being hands on. The advoc the advocacy and education is something that's come about as a bit of a sideline. I do okay. think it's really important. Um, I really like talking and writing about the transformative possibilities of blockchain tech. So I've become an accidental advocate, but actually I'm a jobbing developer and that's kind of like my primary focus. But I do the advocacy, education, writing stuff on the side. And I always have lots of opinions about stuff, as you know. I, I do know that. And I'm always appreciative about uh, looking into that kind of stuff. I, I'd love to hear kind of what do you think are the top takeaways? Why is this stuff interesting? Why is why is a blockchain technology interesting from your point of view? Just high level. I know it's it's very deep. <laughs> well, one of the things that I think most people who entered the um, who kind of entered this vortex back in 2012, 2011, 2012, some people even earlier than that, uh, one thing that they've got in common was this idea that um, you don't need anybody's permission to um, hold your own wealth. The idea of of, um, we heard a lot of rubbish back a few years ago when people were talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin. Um, and 
it used to enrage me to the point where I'd have conversations with people and just be unable to speak with fury. It's like they don't understand, they don't understand. So for me, this idea of blockchain tech, lowering the barrier of entry for developers, giving you like a secure platform to transact without anyone giving you permission, allowing you to build applications, to transfer value. It's that very, very liberating aspect of the technology that attracted me. Obviously, from a strict tech point of view, it's massively interesting because it works in, or it tends to work in a completely different way from the way that we're used to software behaving. So it's kind of interesting from a theoretical point of view, but from a social point of view, I'm still massively interested in this complete freedom. And we're seeing a lot of um, applications built on top of blockchains, which obscure the fundamental principles of what's underneath. And I think that's kind of a shame. That That is a really interesting point. But before I kind of dig into that, and there, there's a few things I want to come into it. You mentioned development. And just before this, you, you'd given a talk about uh, developing on blockchains. Um, what is kind of your, your main takeaway that listeners should know if they're thinking about developing on a blockchain, they haven't done that before. It's this weird world and nothing's like anything ever before, right? It is. But um, I'd I'd say that's kind of semi-true because in my talk, I was highlighting um, 10 useful tools and frameworks for um, building on top of blockchain, uh, building on top of blockchains. And a lot of those were things that non-blockchain developers use on a daily basis, just things that we're all used to, like using Docker to reduce dependencies between team members and things like that. So I think the thing that we've got to remember is that um, blockchain tech is potentially transformative, but it's not magic. It's a data structure. It's software. So you have to approach it with a lot of the same process and discipline that you focus on normal development. I think there's been um, a tendency because we've achieved so much in a really, really short time. Uh, This idea of moving fast and breaking things the the original um, people who developed these platforms, they wouldn't exist if people hadn't moved fast and broken things. But there has to be a balance. Now we're building on top of these platforms with people following due process and um, not just whipping up something in their bedroom and launching it into the world so that everybody can lose all their money. (laughs) And I think it's good that we finally move to people understanding that a lot of money can be lost here (laughs) rather than throwing it around. It's good to move faster break things. We see what happens even when people move slow and things break uh, unbeknownst to them over the last couple of days here. Yes. I want to, I want to dig into something you, you and I were talking about kind of before we came in here. Um, one of the things I, I think broadly speaking that we've seen is there's almost two, maybe three epochs of cryptocurrencies and blockchain uh, as far as I see it. Um, and, and you'll tell me where you disagree and where you agree. We started out kind of the early days, the first four years, let's say, is Bitcoin and a couple of altcoins. And then Ethereum came on the scene 2014, 2015 time and kind of launched the, the real excitement around smart contracts. And I, we can argue whether that existed before, but a lot of excitement. Now in 2018, are we entering a third phase? And if so, what is that? I think that's broadly correct. Um, I think it's really interesting that um, recently there's been a real revival of interest in counterparty assets. And um, for people who were around in the days before Ethereum, people talked a lot about colored coins and tokens on counterparty. And recently we're seeing a real resurgence of this. And I think this is really interesting. People using counterparty for non-fungible tokens is like a thing now. And I think it's quite a sort of interesting thing that we're going back a couple of years and we've got this new take on it. I think from Ethereum's point of view, the next few months are going to be really, really important because obviously people, um, there was massive anticipation before the Ethereum mainnet launched, as I know you remember, and Mm. people were starting to build stuff on testnet. Eventually it went live. And 
I think there's, it's fair to say that there's a um, certain amount of disillusionment around what the platform is and isn't capable of. And perhaps this is something that's partly due to people's expectations that they're putting stuff on chain that shouldn't be on chain in the first place. And people are using Ethereum for all kinds of things that it probably wasn't intended for. So we have things like Afri from Parity tweeting slightly tongue-in-cheek, um, don't deploy your dApps on Ethereum, yeah. no more dApps. And people misinterpreted that, and he got a lot of flack for that, um, unfairly, because he was making a really good point about second-layer solutions are coming. You can use things like proof-of-authority chains, things like that, thinking around what you should be using the main Ethereum network for and what you shouldn't be using it for. And I think this mismatch of expectations is one of the things that's led to this sense of disillusionment, um, which let's see if some of the work in progress can actually reverse this. Yeah. Do you think kind of that will change or stay the same as we start to see these new competitors, if you can call them that, of Ethereum, like EOS or, or Tezos or any of these other uh, newer platforms? Do you think that that will change that and people can write more things in the chains or do you think it's just better engineering practice to not I just think better engineering practice it's isn't that th isn't it that thing that it's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result and if you've got a dap that doesn't work on one chain because it's badly architected and it's trying to store it's trying to do too many transactions on a public chain it's not going to work whatever public yeah. chain whatever governance model you move it um, towards been quite interested watching um, with certainly with the EOS community in London um, I never know whether to say EOS, EOS I've heard different people I. from EOS say different <laughs> things so um, I don't know which it is but I've certainly seen in London this amazing network effect where you just have had a heap of developers piling in to build things on EOS whether or not it's a sustainable governance model I'm not sure but um, again with all public blockchains that's the amazing thing about this you it's user adoption, people using it, that is the only governance. Mm. It's, not, um, it's not regulation. It's not people saying, you have to use this to deploy this. People are trying new things all the time, but they have to be aware that a badly architected um, DAP with a bad business model where you're putting every single small transaction on the chain and having to pay for it is a really bad thing, and they should be seeking other solutions for that. It just all seems too logical. <laughs> Can I shift gears? I want to talk about your group, London Women in Bitcoin. Um, when did that group start? Why did that group start? And what does that group do? Okay, so um, we started way back in 2014, which uh, feels like ancient history in terms of the crypto community. It's virtually like the Jurassic Age. Um, originally, I started it because I'd been living in Berlin, and um, I've got a very good friend in Berlin called Anna, who organized um, Berlin Bitcoin Medchenabend, which translates as Girls Night Bitcoin Girls Night Out. <laughs> so uh, we'd been having a good time there. It was a mixture of having fun socializing and advocacy. So we'd get um, girls showing up who hadn't wanted to go to a mainstream meetup and say, oh, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. Can you show me how to set up a wallet? Mm. So we spent a fair bit of time sitting around tables explaining what Bitcoin was, mm. installing wallets on people's phones, which, um, and sending them small amounts of Bitcoin, which I hope these ladies held on to because... Well, <laughs> <laughs> it was enough for a beer then. It probably turned into some significant amount later on. So when I came back to London, a friend, my friend Magda and I decided, decided to start a group in London doing the same thing. Over time, um, another friend of ours came on board, an uh, amazing lady called Neha, who... Um, decided to take this to a new level so we then moved to skills matter and we have regular kind of educational meetups under the skills matter banner so this can be everything from purely how how one would start using a cryptocurrency or reading stuff off of blockchain to working with develop 
development on these things? Or uh, we don't really do any dev talks. It's maybe something I'd quite like to do. Um, we've had quite a few engineers show up to our meetups. We actually are a mixed group now, but we very politely ask guys who just sh- show up not to show up without a, a lady, whether it's their mum, <laughs> their daughter, their significant other, their best female friend or whatever. Um, so it's. I think that's probably a more healthy attitude. I think it's definitely a great initiative because there's a lot of people, as you say, women or, or people that are getting into this after they meet people that have been in it for a while that would like to get involved in a, maybe a different environment from what uh, exists out there. So really congratulations on doing that. I've got a little daughter, so it's very close to my heart that I'd love that she could do whatever she wants when she grows up. She's only 18 months old, so not quite a developer yet, but she'll get there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, really great to, to learn more about what you're doing. Could you tell people that are listening where to find out more about you and maybe how to get involved? Okay, cool. So thank you so much. It's really nice to see you again. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at Rianne underscore is. Um, and the next big thing really is relaunching Count My Crypto, which has been in progress for so long, I can't even talk about it. <laughs> and um, if you go on meetup.com and search for London Women in Bitcoin, you'll find details of our upcoming meetups. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're back. Blockchain Insider at Blockchain Live. I'm going to get sick of saying that. The, the once weekly podcast that comes out with that we are here and all that great stuff. What we're going to talk about is way more interesting. We're going to talk about Quorum. And not the Quorum that uh, I have heard about previously. The one spelled with a CH, which is way cooler than one with a Q, right? It is. <laughs> so I'm here with the always present, the always amazing Rick Crook. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for coming back. Great, Colin. Great to be here. And two gentlemen I've just met and who are much more interested than Rick, <laughs> Ben Wythe, and David Williams. You guys represent, well, the C-suite, I think, of the quorum team, right? Part of it. Part of it. Okay, so there's a bigger C-suite. It's quite big. You got a big suite. Excellent. So, guys, can you tell us first, who are you, what are you doing, and what is Quorum? Quorum is a blockchain development company. Uh, it is working with the Cordite Foundation Code, which is the brainchild of Richard, Ben, and others here. And it is developing distributed applications uh, using that code. Uh, we have a, an ICO in the market. Uh, our first partner is a company called Arkit. Arkit is using the Cordite Foundation Code to stand up the first iteration, the first instance of Cordite, uh, which not only combines uh, that amazing uh, public blockchain software, but also uses some new quantum encryption technology, uh, which is being developed in partnership with, amongst others, British Telecom and the European Space Agency. So ARKIT will be the first instance of Cordite. It will also be uh, quantum safe. Um, and finally, it incorporates a new protocol that we've invented called Proof of Performance, which we think is an important innovation that automatically incentivizes node operators. And, and really important, before I let you go on, you're working with the European Space Agency, and there's a token. So where are we going? The moon. <laughs> Quite possibly. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, so once that... Uh, uh, Arkit blockchain system is up and running. We'll have hopefully 2,000 nodes established. It's very important to Quorum that we get a really large professional base of well-structured, uh, 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 well-incentivized node operators. And then we have an ecosystem of distributed applications that will launch onto those nodes, which means that the token holders in Arkit should see a lot of business coming their way very soon. Uh, some of the dApps that we're working with have large corporate partnerships with companies like Deutsche Telekom and PCCW in Hong Kong and Sony in Japan. So we're very focused on working on applications that have large corporate partners because those are the people that we think can drive really large-scale adoption of blockchain technology. So our focus is on enterprise partnerships. Excellent. Ben. Rick, can you guys tell me who you guys are? Yeah, so uh, we've just uh, exited, or I've just exited uh, Royal Bank Scotland, um, who've been a tremendous employer and, uh, and sponsor. 
Um, but I think if you look at the blockchain space, it's expanding and it's accelerating. Uh, and it reminds me of the kind of mid '90s uh, with the internet. And I think it's as we we started to look at what we wanted to do next, um, we uh, came into contact with with David and. Actually, we saw a partnership there uh, where, as you can hear from David, there's some exciting things that he's got as a vision, uh, and we started to look at how we would work together. And that's how Quorum came about uh, in that kind of classic, bringing in a seasoned uh, CEO uh, like David uh, and someone like myself coming in uh, from the from the enterprise blockchain space. And what we saw was a meeting of minds, and we actually went, do you know what? This is going to work. Let's go and do something. So we're really excited uh, to, to have stepped out and into the space. Uh, I think if you look at some of the work we were doing in the FCA sandbox uh, with digital mutuals and mutual societies, that is... What is uh, a digital mutual? Ben, you want to pick up? <laughs> so I guess we've... Um We've been building lots of decentralized applications. Uh, sorry, uh, lots of decentralized applications, and we, we keep finding problems in this new business landscape. We're literally bringing uh, lots of organisations together to build fun and run decentralized uh, applications. Um, but it's actually it's actually very hard to, to do that in the in the real world. And um, we've struggled with um, aligning things like budgeting cycles with who's going to actually build the app, who's going to make changes, uh, and also um, you know who figures out which set of changes to make next. So. Um, we came up with this idea that um, we could create some code, a decentralized autonomous organization, that would allow us to represent governance, economics, and membership models. Um, and that would actually facilitate bringing these uh, organizations together so they can actually, I don't know, fund the building of the decentralized application to propose and vote for changes to that decentralized application. Um, and then we took a, a step back and thought, well, there must be some existing structures in our current uh, legal system uh, that we'd have a look at. And we found the Cooperative Society. So um, we went and had a chat with the FCA, and we're pretty close to having a real FCA-registered um, Cooperative Society called Corbite Society Limited. Um, I think we should probably get that next week, um, uh, or certainly a decision about it. Um, and that will be something that we'll be running on, uh, on, on Corbite. Excellent. So that's, a, that's the first example of a mutual society on a blockchain. So a building society on a blockchain, kind of, or uh, you could take it. You could take it that way. Union credit union in the United States, union, yeah. and that will then bring in the token side of this if you if you wanted to. But I think most importantly, there is you've got a decentralized governance, which we've always had in mutual societies, right. but we've now digitized that, and you can put that uh, very much into uh, in, into the Cordite or the blockchain space. So when this thing's set up, can you guys like make loans and take deposits? The, the, Legally, <laughs> the, the Cordite Society is not about um, that aspects. Sorry, the Cordite Society is not about those aspects uh, of, of mutual. So the, the credit union aspects will come later, and we can just um, sort of write plugins that allow us to do those sorts of bits and pieces. Um, this one's more about um, exploring just the governance aspects in the first instance. Um, the tokenization stuff sits around that uh, uh, for the moment, but but yes, it's a very natural fit. Actually, in some ways, it's a better fit um, uh, for what we're doing. It's, it's establishing a strong regulatory framework for the technology that will allow applications to do exactly that. So we'll be able to have financial services businesses launch using that platform in a nicely controlled regulatory environment. And I think it's really encouraging that the UK is beginning to lead the regulatory landscape for good quality compliant businesses. Compliance regulation framework. You guys aren't cypherpunks. What's going on here? <laughs> it's regulatory friendly. And then one of your listeners is going to sit there and think, actually, I could build a credit union. I could build a, uh, a, a building society. And actually, what they've then got in Cordite is the capability to do that, where they probably don't have the tech capability. Uh, they now have it. Uh, it's out of the box. And you can go and build yourself a credit union or a building society very easily and, using that tech. And it's open source. So let, let me back up here and... and bring out layers and, and Rick, I want to come in specifically, Rick and Ben. Um, Cordite is what? Cordite is an open source project that um, a number of financial institutions, including our former one, have been contributing to to give us tokens uh, in Corda, where we didn't have tokens in Corda before. And that now marries up an enterprise-grade blockchain uh, with, a uh, with, a, with a token. Add to that We've moved away from mining, as we're quite clearly seeing across the scape, across the domain, and into metering, and that's again something you'll now see inside Corda. You've got metering, and then finally, we were really impressed with the governance structures that Dash have created in DAO, and that was the front runner to what Ben's been working on as a digital mutual inside the mutual, creating a mutual society on Corda. And that, again, is what you see in the digital mutual in Cordite. So Cordite is a collection of libraries, if you will, on top of Corda that just gives you the capability to, to do tokens, 
uh, much like you would do in Ethereum. Add to that, uh, build mutual societies, a digital mutual that'll be FCA regulated, so you can then fit inside a regulatory framework. Uh, and then lastly, metering to get us away from this proof of, proof of work, which is only consuming trees and oxygen right now. Uh, so you, you don't put trees into the blockchain? <laughs> no. Ah. no. No, are we cutting them down. Ah, okay. Yeah. So tell me, I, I'm, I'm actually really curious, what is proof of performance and, and what is metering and how is it different from paying on a per transaction basis? David, you want to pick that one? Proof of performance answers the question in a proof of stake environment, how do node operators get paid? Okay. Uh, obviously there's no mining in proof of stake. Um, and so you have to set up rules to determine how node operators are incentivized. Um, for us, the most important thing with our foundational ARKIT network is that we generate a large network of really professional, highly performant nodes, and we're targeting 2,000 nodes. If we're going to have a large volume of uh, enterprise customers using our dApps, they're going to want to know that the network is robust. And so proof of performance is a way of delivering a highly reliable income stream to those node operators based on an automatic method for assessing the quality of service that they provide. So we replace mining with a, an automated judgment of how well they're doing their job. And if they do their job well, they get paid fees. If they don't do their job well, they don't get paid fees. Is this similar to like, um, I know in the XRP ledger, they have an idea where the percentage over a, a day, I think is what they measure, how many times you're in consensus with everybody else. Is it similar to that? It similar. It's in the same universe, but it's, it's quite different. It, it's close. Although what you're trying to do there is measure how close you are to the consensus. Right. So you're trying to show that you're within the crowd. Actually, proof of performance is, as it says on the tin, you're just trying to show that you are performant. Uh, and if you're a masternode in a network, one of the things the network requires is that you're hitting a certain SLA or performance. Uh, I think this account. is also going to be a very large evolution in the way that the world's computer networks operate. This goes way beyond blockchain. Uh, so, for example, the, the 5G standards body is already moving away from charging on a per megabit of bandwidth utilization basis to try to figure out a way of assessing the quality of service provided. So I think that the world's IT industry is moving towards quality assurance um, and proof of performance is part of that trend. It's all about high quality network performance. So if I could really boil this down so an idiot like me can understand it. So Amazon AWS, I, I use their cloud services. I pay for them in dollars or euros or pounds or whatever it is on a monthly basis based on how much I use. What you guys are saying is it's similar to that, but then there's another notion inside of that where you say, removing the blockchain for a moment, if Amazon delivers a higher or lower quality of service, instead of paying them $100 a month, I might pay them 110 if they do really well or 90 if they don't do as well. Yes, yeah, so as a node operator, you would be incentivized to use a high-quality service provider like AWS, and you'd be more likely to get paid your fee than you would if you were running the node on a, on a laptop on an unreliable telecoms connection. Hey, you don't know about my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> it's got quadrillions of dollars on it. Come on. <laughs> so we talked about Cordite. It's, it's a protocol, kind of, that came from the open-source project started by R3, one of our, our proud sponsors here. Um, extra tools on top of it. There's there's Arkit on top of that, which is the actual implementation of it. And then Quorum is on top of that. Okay, so I think I got it all. Uh, the Arkit token uh, or ICO, uh, token sale, whatever terminology we're gonna go with. Uh, when, um, is that something that's open to anybody? Or is that open to... Yeah, so the token sale launched last week okay. and uh, Arkit announced that Neo Global Capital, which is the biggest uh, crypto fund manager in, uh, in Asia, uh, became the anchor investor, which is really exciting. Um, uh, there are another couple of dozen Asian and American funds now doing the work to buy into the token sale. Um, at Arkit.io, there is a whitelisting site which is now live where any prospective investor can go and register and do the whitelisting process. Which means KYC and all these other good things. So you, you'd as, go to as light touch as we could make it, yes. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you very much, guys. I learned a lot. Really interesting project. I'm very curious to see more. I'm very happy there's finally a quarter coin, even if it's kind of like 
oblique to that. Um, but can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, more about Orkut, more about Cordite Foundation, and more about so you can learn all about Cordite at cordite.foundation. Uh, you can learn all about the first instance of that at arkit, A-R-Q-I-T dot I-O. Uh, there is a Corum website, C-H-O-R-U-M dot I-O, which we will begin to populate in the next few weeks. Colin, thank you very much for having us. Great thank fun. you, guys. Look forward to coming back. Twitter handles everyone other than Corum. I know that one now. At <laughs> Nimash for me. At Arkit LTD. And at Rick Crook. Thank you very much, Colin, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Well, uh, we are back here live, uh, recorded live, at Blockchain Live, live, live. Um, and uh, I'm joined by Lydia Torn uh, from Simmons and Simmons, the law firm. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I am not too bad. It's been a blockchain-y kind of day. Um, I bet. It really has. So uh, you were talking before we started recording about life sciences and yes. blockchain. What's blockchain got to do with life sciences and what's life <laughs> sciences got to do with blockchain? That's a fair enough question, I think. I think it's quite a lot of use cases for life sciences. So the one that, that we're seeing already coming out is for supply chain management. Uh, so tracking drugs, medical devices from active ingredient to end user, which has fantastic use applications. It, there's a huge regulatory element attached to the management and supply of drugs, so it really does alleviate a lot of life sciences clients' concerns. But also, I'm talking later about um, the use of blockchain for electronic patient records and how that might work. Uh, we're already seeing the government try and introduce electronic medical records and give you access to your medical records. Not quite sure how that's going to go for them, but it will be interesting to see. But looking at it from a blockchain basis so that you can take more ownership of your own medical records. And how does one take ownership of their medical records with a blockchain? And how do you make that compliant with GDPR and data privacy and confidentiality? That, that is a very fair enough question. So it, it's a complicated one, I think, is the answer. So you would essentially, you're not putting patient data on chain. It's just not built for that. And it would be legally a quagmire to do that. So really what we're looking at is blockchains that are using hash features to point to off-chain silos of data. Yes. So it's an interoperability function. Can I step through blockchains yeah. that are using hash pointers to yeah. talk to to point to off-chain data? Yeah. Deconstruct that because I think that's a really interesting point. I'm no tech lawyer uh, and I'm no tech person so bear with me but my understanding is that essentially all that's being stored on the chain is hashes of, of data which are uh, records of interactions that you're having with your healthcare professionals. Right. But they are pointing to completely separate and maintain silos of data still. So you could have the audit trail and the event yeah. log of everything that has happened that happened with consent without your data sitting in a publicly available blockchain. Exactly. And you would also be able to track, say, consent. So consent to treatment would be recorded. You'd also be able to pick up if there has been anyone accessing your medical record, if anyone's tried to change what's been recorded, which unfortunately is an issue that we need to bear in mind. But essentially, it's an interoperability function. So it allows you to access the multiple sets of databases that we already have. So I don't know how much you know about medical records at the moment, but essentially the issue that we have is that you go to the NHS hospital, that's one record, it's separate from your GP record, just separate from your private healthcare record. So if you then go into emergency with something awful happened to you, God forbid, and they need to find out actually, you know, where has this come from? Do you have a history of this? They only have a very limited set of information available to them. So actually for you as a patient, it's quite a concern that people don't have all of your medical records. So blockchain solution will, will allow you to be able to give access to who you want to, when you want to, and to take that permission away, which is quite an empowering tool for a patient. I can imagine it could be quite empowering, but uh, are we going to need people to be building the products and services that use that? And who shall build this blockchain of well, uh, joy? That is a very good question. I mean, there, there are companies already out there offering a blockchain-based medical record solution, and one assumes that they're looking to sell that into the NHS and others. Um, I think it will have to come from the top down, which in the UK will be the NHS. But as you say, there are a whole host of legal issues associated with developing that kind of technology, and not least when we talk about patient data, is going to be GDPR compliance, data privacy compliance. And well, it's one thing to hack my Instagram account; it's another thing to hack my medical record. Well, Exactly. And the issue with that kind of blockchain-based solution that we were talking about where it's off-chain is that the data integrity and security of those off-chain silos remains vulnerable. So um, actually, you're not quite fixing the, the data security issue that, that the healthcare institutions have at the moment. However, 
the thing that concerns me the most about what I hear on this area is people saying, oh, well, I'm only hashing, it's anonymous, it's not GDPR. Uh, actually, GDPR will apply to hashes as well, okay? So you don't get away from it by just saying the hasher data. Um, so as a result, anything pretty much that's going to have personal data that is not anonymized on a blockchain is going to be GDPR compliant. And you run into difficulty straight away because with GDPR, you need to be able to erase data at Indeed. request. But in theory, doesn't that mean that if I have to be able to fully erase data at request, um, companies that store magnetic tapes are in real trouble because uh, I don't know where most of the Iron Mountain or other tape yeah. services are available, but those sorts of companies have no idea where your data is. With a blockchain, yeah. at least you know where it is and at least you know that somebody has intentionally removed any linkage to you, the individual. Well, that's, that's an interesting solution as well. And we've talked a lot about kind of how you might get around that issue because you don't always have to erase data. There are certain statutory exceptions which might be viable. You know, you'd have to think about it on a case-by-case -case basis. But in terms of whether you could come around with a, a technological workaround, so maybe just saying, actually, I just take away access for anyone even you, to your blockchain data, and that's as good as Erasure. We're waiting for the EU Commission to really come out and give a view. Interesting time. So if people want to get in touch with you, where do they find you, Lydia? They can find me at Simmons & Simmons. If you have a look on the website and search the very, very unique name of Torn, which is not a common name, you can find me. And thank I'm you. talking later today at the GovTech stage. GovTech stage. All right. Thank you very much, Lydia, for being on Blockchain Insider. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And that is the end of the show. Thank you very much, as always, to our guests. Thank you, our listeners, for listening once again. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, stay up to date on social media at Insider. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye.